Osiris. Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Hey, this is Oteal. If you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Comes a Time. Uh, Oteal is making sweet, sweet music. So I am joined today by the uh, founder of Flow State Micro, a good friend, a return guest of the podcast. Mr. Adam Bramlich. What's up, bud? Mike, thanks for having me. Great to be here today. Before I get started, I should tell everybody that obviously we are here on the Osiris Network, so uh, please support all of the episodes and all the other podcasts that are here on this fine network. And if you like what you're hearing, you should head over to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod where you can hear bonus episodes every week and all of the great curated content made by the wizard and uh, join us over there. And as always, we are not giving medical advice. We are just here for entertainment purposes only. And now we will dive into it with Adam. I love your shirt. It seems like you're all set to go to, to hit the lot. I'm going to hit the lot. I don't know. This shirt's a little thick. I'm not sure I can pull that off come summer tour, but uh, cut the sleeves off. Yeah, maybe I cut the sleeves off. Uh, I think the the organ player in Joe Russo, or uh, he also has this shirt. I saw him wearing it. So I would hate to run into someone in the lot in the same shirt. So not sure about that, but this is, this is a great shirt. And what this shirt reminds me of with the skulls and which is what I think is so important about Bertha and the Grateful Dead and the skeletons is um, it reminds me of our ancestors, right? Yeah. This, this is our ancestors. And uh, I love that about their music and the following and the symbolism. Yeah, totally. You know, it's uh that's the thing I think that's so exciting and enthralling about the Grateful Dead to me and and I was never into the comic book stuff. I was never really into the like superhero stuff. Like I got so into the Grateful Dead and sports at such a young age that it was like that was my get lost in the art. Like old Grateful Dead books, the Grateful Dead family album, um the old like Dupree's Diamond News magazines and stuff and just the album covers. And it all had this like you could get lost in the art and the concert poster art and all of it. And the fact that it all kind of fell into that same motif, like you're talking about the ancestors, like the grateful dead is so like tuned into their ancestors. And I think 
that's the neat thing is like when you come along for that ride with them, you're going to learn, like you're going to learn about history. And that's, what's really neat about that. You know? Yeah. I love it. And I just saw, found a new, uh, audio recording on YouTube of Joseph Campbell, Jerry Garcia, and Mickey Hart at Berkeley back in the, I think the eighties. And they did a whole three or four hour performance and talk where Joseph Campbell talked about the mysteries and then Mickey Hart and a group of musicians performed this amazing music for a few hours. And then Jerry sat on a panel with Joseph Campbell and, and talked all about it. And, you know, Joseph Campbell was, I don't have the exact quote, but he said, you know, many times the Grateful Dead are, they were the rites of passage for, you know, that generation and, and they helped spread the mysteries. And, and if we have to be honest, what kept the psychedelic movement alive after Nixon shut it down in 66 more than anything was the traveling deadhead caravan that would pranksters and and pranksters that would show up uh two times a year fall and summer tour and you would load up on on your mushrooms or your good lsd and uh that's how it was spread around the world by by the band and the group and their followers and we owe them a huge debt of gratitude because all of all the science and the research and the studies and all the deadheads in the sixties were, were saying that back then, you know, so we owe them a huge bet, uh, you know, huge debt of gratitude for uh, bringing that wild circus on the road. Yeah, we totally do. And and the thing that's cool too, like you mentioned Campbell and it's, it's always interesting to hear about the folks who were like, like Hunter Thompson's like, I would beat my way through, uh, you know, Oh, I forget what he said. Like, I'd love to look at it. I, he's like, I, I would beat my way through a crowd with an ax to get into a Grateful Dead concert if they're in town, you know, like nothing's going to stop him from getting to the show. Stanley Krippner, like all these guys, Campbell. I mean, Campbell is like, he had his finger on the pulse of the whole hero's journey, the whole iconic, like just as someone who appreciates lore and writing and like the concept of like going through that journey as a person and as a character, like for him to be able to go and kind of fill his wet vessel, you know, or like at a Grateful Dead concert all the way to Bill Walton, you know, I mean, it's kind of amazing how many amazing people went to that well to fill up. Well, that's, that's the powerful well, the power of music, you know, and if we look back to the beginning of, of time, that's what the, the shamanic people were doing. We're banging the drum or, you know, I, I saw they found a recent artifact where it was a shirt of all little shells. And they did some studies where they figured out that the shells were rubbing against each other. And basically the, the shaman or the medicine man would dance in this shirt and it would create a rhythm or a sound to, to take the people farther into their, their trance. So music has long been the portal. You know, if you look in the Vedic or Hindu tradition, everything started with the syllable Om and, and, and that vibration. So, um, we're just lucky that that the Grateful Dead lasted as long as it's, it did, and it still continues to uh, spread around the world like mycelium. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so funny. I was having a conversation with someone recently about how, and and I guess I, I at first I was kind of blown away because we were talking about how, like, choosing music for a journey, regard like whether it's LSD, whether it's a float whether it's mushrooms, ketamine, whatever it may be that's the medicine at the time, um, choosing the music 
choosing the soundtrack or the thing that will audibly kind of take you because it, you know, that disassociation with, you know, you can feel music, you can taste sight, things like that. To me, that's what makes it so it, it, it sets that landscape for the trip. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And um, someone I was talking to was like, I go silent. They go, I go completely silent. And I just let the sounds of where I am or the sounds of the room or the sounds of wind or this, you know, uh, do it for me. And I'm like, I cannot imagine be doing any type of journey or any type of anything without music. And, and I'm extremely controlling about that with the music. So like, I want it to be perfect, which is silly because nothing is, right? And surrendering's a big part of it. But I never in a million years considered anything with no, no soundtrack whatsoever. Like that's mind blowing to me. Really mind blowing. And, and I think that's what was uh, Terrence McKenna's advice was five grams silent darkness and, <laughs> and, and no playlist guiding you, no sounds guiding you. Um, I'd hope maybe that's outside somewhere safe in nature where like the wind can guide you and the bird song. Something, because I know inside my little place, five grams out of darkness would be uh, a hero's journey for sure. Um, so yeah, music is is powerful. It, it guides the process. I remember talking to Dr. Fadiman one time about what the early kind of musical playlists that they used with Al Hubbard and all those guys back in the 60s. And he said, most importantly, you know, it didn't have any words. You know, people were going to be in such a deep state that they weren't going to really be hearing words anyway. So early on, they started with classical music, you know, Mozart and Beethoven and, and that type stuff. And now in MDMA therapy and, and in psilocybin based therapy, they're using all different kinds of uh, music from sound bowl healing to gongs to, um, you know, I've been in a session where at the end, Alan Watts came on, you know, along with kind of a dance track under it and made everyone laugh and smile. So there is a way you can use words at the end or at the very beginning before people are, are too deep. But yeah, music has always been that, that greater connection. And I'm glad that 
music is opening back up to the world and we can all see each other live and in person again. Yeah. Yeah. This week I'm going to, I'll be at the garden to see fish for the first time. And well, I saw them last year, but outside. So this will be the first time I've seen them indoors since new year's Eve, 2019 at the garden. So, uh, it's, it's a lot, it's intimidating. It, it's, it's, this is a, a whole other, I've haven't been inside a place with that many people since that last time. So that's going to be a lot of release, but you know, it's, it's all last year. Anything I got to see, um, it was really special, you know, like just more special than before looking across a, you know, tennis center or a outdoor space, even if it's just a little gathering out. So, you know, just not, not, not a huge thing, not a big concert, but just seeing people dance and sing along and have a good time. It's like them remembering how to be free was yeah. like really remembering, wild. Remembering how to dance and <laughs> and how powerful dancing is to release your stresses and your traumas and, and your worries and, and all of that stuff. You know, it's music and celebration is, is so important to us. We need that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you, you know, as a coach and as this is something that I wanted to kind of chat with you about, you know, there's the, there's the medicines, there's the, um, regiment, there's all of that. But one of the things I wanted to talk about was the outlying things, the ancillary things that you can combine, that you can combine with say microdosing or not that can help you maintain that positive or, you know, moving forward, uh, trajectory with the experience, because a lot of people, and we're in a culture where you take a pill and then you go to the drive through at Wendy's and you're kind of just like, why it's not working yet. You know what I mean? So, you know, the aesthetics, the world surrounding us, like as a coach, I'd love to chat with you about some of the things that, you know, we can surround ourselves with or go out and, you know, experience to make the experience that much better. Yeah, that's a great point and a great question. And, and the first thing is this is my, microdosing psychedelics are not for everyone, doesn't work for everyone. It's a tool. It's not a magic pill. You as the individual are going to actually do the healing. It's not a seven day a week thing. And the ultimate goal is that you're not microdosing anymore when you're feeling better, right? So it's also not Western medical seven right. days a week. But as a coach, and this all comes from, you know, me coaching myself first out of a deep, dark depression was that you have to add other modalities with microdosing to change your life. If you don't change your life, your life doesn't change. And in order to do that, you have to do different things. So the first thing for me and the first thing I suggest for every client is exercise. We need to move our body. We need to get off our ass and move our body. Our ancestors were hunter gatherers. If you were out of shape and you couldn't, you know, trace down that animal for 10 miles after it was wooden, your clan didn't eat, you didn't survive. So I saw a statistic the other day that we spend 10% of our time outside these days. And that's from a hundred percent originally. So I have my clients get outside. If they're really out of shape, it's just a walk every day. Start with walking. You know, they've done studies where a 10 minute walk reduces depressive rates. So people just need to motivate 
and be a little less lazy and start by moving their body every day when they commit to moving their body, walking or working out, they're building a little bit of discipline. They're feeling a little bit better about themselves. So exercise is one of them. Uh, diet is something that naturally comes with microdosing. So let's say that they start microdosing and they're still eating at Wendy's. There's something interesting that happens with the fungal intelligence where after a while they're like, why the Am I eating at Wendy's? <laughs> this doesn't yeah. anymore. Like, what am I doing to my body? So what we see in microdosing a lot is a lot of secondary changes happen that people aren't planning for. Meaning I'm taking this for depression. And what happens is I change my diet. I join the gym. Uh, I'm reading books more than watching Netflix and all these little things change. So what I'm doing as a coach is I'm giving them multiple things, motivating them, checking in on them, making sure they're doing it. Um, but the most important is exercise from exercise comes diet and uh, a clearer mind and, and all that stuff. And you need these things like exercise and meditation and reading and growth because microdosing is not every day. You're going to have days off. And while there is a 48 hour effect, you're still going to have hard days, right? Life is hard. Life is challenging. So you need to be able to turn to the gym when you're not on your microdosing day and, and you might feel like you need it. You need to turn towards meditation. You need to turn towards maybe talk therapy. If you've got some deeper stuff you need to work through and you need to add things to the microdosing, because again, the point of microdosing is not to take it for the rest of your life. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. And it's not the, it, it, I, I, and I know it's probably a question that you get a lot, but I mean, I kind of think about that from the perspective of like, where does psilocybin land in the pharmaceutical landscape? Because is, is it lucrative in the sense of, you know, cholesterol medicines, oh, you got to take it, you know, blood pressure medication, you have to take it. Antidepressants, you have to take it. So if you don't, is it, you know, lucrative for there to be more research? Well, I just heard an amazing fact the other day that Maria Sabina, you know, the woman that introduced mushrooms to Wasson and, and whatnot is yeah. actually responsible for the invention of beta blockers. Beta blockers came from uh, Hoffman synthesizing psilocin and psilocybin. And now that's a billion dollar industry that was created wow. from the original mushrooms that Maria Sabina uh, gave over to our Gordon Wasson. So I believe capitalism and, and corporations could always find a way to make money out of this. But what's so important about psychedelics and, and fungi and, and psilocybin as opposed to cannabis is, you know, we need to try and decriminalize this first. And we need to make sure that we don't just legalize and medicalize this. If we were to give the only rights to use these sacred plants and ceremony to doctors or people that go to university or PhD, we would be taking them away from the people that have carried these traditions throughout genocide and torture and colonizations for tens of thousands of years. So I think the most important discussion is we need to decriminalize it before we get anywhere near legalizing it. We need to make it so people can't be arrested for using it in community and small ceremonies. And then we need to make sure that the medicine man or the traditional indigenous societies can also treat people without having to go to a university for six years and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars and jump through hoops. Now, the other thing we need to do when we legalize it is we need to not do what we did in cannabis in California, and we need to make it open and available to get a license to small time people. 
What they did with cannabis is they made the barrier of entry so high that no one could afford to get in. Now it's all consolidated into the biggest companies. So with psilocybin, they need to open it up so that if you're a member of the community, you can grow, you can start your brand. As long as maybe it passes the lab test and they check your facility and you're good, you can compete with big capital, big capital, excuse me, but we need to make sure that we don't take this away from the people, the community that have kept growing these since it's been illegal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the last thing we want to do. And it's funny watching every state try to figure out uh, weed becoming legal. It's so hilarious to watch all of them go kind of like, well, let's see what they did and let's try to figure out how to capitalize, but not, and it's like state, county, town, and city are all like making their own decisions and kind of watching each other and deciding what to do. And it's like, meanwhile, people are driving across state borders to get stuff from states that have it figured out and it's just taking forever. And it seems to me like psilocybin from what I'm seeing, some states are, yeah, it's like recognized and decriminalized as a a major treater of antidepressant or treatment resistant depression which is incredible. I mean, that's such great progress. And I think that might be from a macro standpoint, not a micro standpoint. I mean, a lot of the success we have with microdosing is in the area of depression. And I I bet that they're going to prove that out in future studies. But again, what I think is important is that we look at the history and we look at our ancestors and we look at the truth first. I mean, John Ehrlichman is quoted as saying, we knew the drugs weren't bad. We knew they weren't bad. We knew they were working for people. Like, I don't need to wait five more years to prove it all out in research labs at Harvard and around the world. They proved it was effective for alcoholism and all kinds of stuff in the 50s. And then that went underground. Not to mention for thousands of years, people have been using this to to treat all kinds of conditions. You know, since LSD and psychedelics were made illegal in 1966, more than 30 30 million people have used them. Right. And I just heard on a 30 to 40 year longitudinal study of ER visits due to drug overdoses, psilocybin and LSD made 0.05% of those visits. Right. So classic psychedelics didn't even make up 1% of the drug visits that are happening to the emergency room, but nobody wants to talk about alcohol. Nobody wants to talk about pharmaceutical drugs. No one wants to talk about McDonald's and Burger King destroying your health. No one wants to talk about, uh, you know, the fact that the doctors know how to get you on drugs, but they don't know how to get you off. Um, And these are all really important things. You know, a doctor should follow up with his patient after he prescribes him methamphetamine or Adderall or something like that. But do they check up on you? No. And do they know how to titrate you or taper you off? They don't. I actually have a handful of doctors that come to me asking me how to do it. And I'm like, I'm not a doctor. You know, you're the doctor. That is true. We are not doctors. We are not uh, giving medical advice. We're talking about, you know, the stuff that, you know, I guess, what was it called? Citizen science, right? Isn't that the term? Citizen science and citizen science is the original science. I mean, we've only been testing stuff in this double blind scientific placebo laboratory environment for 150 to 200 years, right? Yeah. That's not very long. Now there's cave paintings from 10,000 years ago in Algiers of a beheaded mushroom shaman. 
And there's a cave painting in Spain called the Selva Pasquale mural where the US National Forest Service has been quoted as saying, this is the oldest known mural of psilocybin mushrooms in the world, right? Our ancestors were using this, you know, and, and the, the history or the research I've done in, in Joseph Campbell and myth and these ancient mysteries is, is long before Christianity or Egypt or any of these times, they were worshiping the earth and the right. sun. And you know what they worshiped probably as much or more than the sun is they worshiped the animals that they ate and that they survived off of. That's why these cave paintings from 20, 40,000 years ago have pigs or bears or, you know, half man, half animals, because that animal was God to them. If it wasn't for that animal, they didn't eat, they didn't survive. So they worshiped animals. And then there's amazing theory that Richard Evan Schultes and a lot of amazing people have put out there that the first idea of deity and myth came from psychedelic experience, came from the early hunter gatherers having a vision of a, a half beast, half man, and then scraping it into a wall. And from there, you know, myths and amazing things started. And the reality is the more scientific research and archaeological finds we have, the older everything turns out to be. What we think is truth is, you know, turning out not to be truth. We think that civilization started in 3300 BC with written language in Sumeria, but we refuse to think of Gobekli Tepe, which is 9,500, you know, years old and was, a, you know, advanced civilization carving into rocks and building temples. But no one, no one wants to talk about that. And then if you think about the fact that they burned down the whole library at Alexandria in Egypt, which held all the ancient knowledge and religion, I mean, they've taken they've taken this from us and it's our birthright, which is why when we get to legalizing psychedelics, it needs to be decriminalized first, because the biggest issue in cannabis, let alone that capital capital, all the investment capital took it over, is that there's people in jail serving life sentences for a joint. Right. While people are still, you know, making millions of dollars off of consolidating a business in California that used to be made up of small farmer families that were totally kicked out of the space. So we need to make sure that legalization doesn't mean that only medical doctors and, you know, people in white coats and with PhDs can use these tools and medicines. Right. Absolutely. Very well said. And, and, you know, it's interesting that like, you know, there's this kind of, you know, there's science and religion, but science and spirituality seem to go hand in hand with the scientists who are willing to admit that there's more out there than what's appearing on the Petri dish, you know? Well, that's why I love Joseph Campbell. He talks about the mystery, the great mystery. Right. Like just hold that word there. Mystery. Like it's a mystery. Like we're not going to solve it. We're not going to solve it. We're not going to be able to put it in words. And that's where like psychedelics, like a large dose, maybe ayahuasca or DMT or even LSD experience is similar to parenting. Like you can't understand being a parent until you're a parent. Mm. You can't put that into words the same way you can't put your ayahuasca journey into words. It's beyond words. There is a mystery to this planet. There is a mystery to this life. And we as a society feel like we're going to prove it out in science. And we're finding a new planet every you know, few months. We're finding you know, older temples than we thought ever existed. And, and it's, it's not surprising. You know, this, is, this is our past. And I, I think that part of what I love to do as, as a coach and an educator is, is 
teach people the history. You know, they've, they've hid the history from you. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And I wanted to ask you actually, in listening to you talk about this, like, was history something that you were always interested in or did this, you know, like path bring you to learning more about the history of humanity? Because it's interesting to me when you find that, you know, when you're, when you're spoon fed things in school and you're just not into it, you're like, whatever you, you kind of, the time finds you where it's like, here, let's, let's take this path to learn about it. And I'm wondering what brought you, if you were a history buff or is it, you know, what you're working with now? It really was the mushrooms to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, when I look back at high school and college, I was a, you know, cannabis wasn't really motivating me <laughs> to care about my study. Cannabis at that time too. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now what I'll tell you is, um, since I've been microdosing, I have thoroughly enjoyed discipline on many levels, discipline that I never had before, like cleaning your house, cleaning your room, you know, exercising and reading is something I really got into. But when I started to listen to people like McKenna and Kalindi IE, who's an amazing man from Detroit that passed away uh, last year, that was all about the high dose journeys, 30 to 40 grams and, and getting all these amazing codes. And, and he was, he was a teacher for really looking into the super large dose, which may have been what these Egyptians and, and all of these people were doing in the midst of these, of these temples and these, these pyramids. So what I realized, what got me really excited was these mushrooms started to kind of pull the veil off for me. And I started to look at history and, you know, you look at the immortality key by Brian Morescu and, you know, he basically proves out with, you know, science that there was ergotamine in these goblets. And then you look at the fact that you can trace Constantine and the Roman empire destroying all the temples and scratching the face off the Demeter deities. And, and, you know, this is a long tradition of the people in charge, making sure we're not connected to earth and it's, it's sacred tools. And I got really into the history and uh, I wanted to know like, what was the beginning of religion? What was the beginning of myth? How far can I trace it back? And uh, been reading just so many amazing books like the sacred mushroom and the cross, which was the book by uh, John D. Allegro that, uh, you know, made the claim that Jesus was a mushroom and, and not an actual person. And Jesus, the word Jesus and all of these parables and myths were actually code for the mushroom and whatnot. And, and then I've read the psychedelic gospels by Jerry and Julie Brown, where they went over to Europe and they proved out in some ancient frescoes from the 1100s, where there are numerous instances of psilocybin mushrooms, um, so much so as psilocybin mushrooms were even hidden in the hems of the last disciples in a lot of the murals of the Last Supper. Uh, another wow. thing that the Browns point out is in the days of the Last Supper you, or the days of Jesus, you broke bread with what? Your hands, right? We broke bread with our hands. Well, in a lot of these paintings of the Last Supper, there's giant cutting knives on the table, which represent the knives that were used to cut psilocybin and some of these other murals, these two um, amazing teachers put this together, the Browns. And, you know, and then Allegro shows out that the word mana bread is reversible with mushroom. Right. <laughs> and right. It upset a lot of people. And the person it upset the most was uh, the Catholic church and R. Gordon Wasson and the Catholic church bought up every copy of his book for a few decades to the point where nobody could 
even read his book. And what came out later after Wasson died is Wasson was the private banker for the Vatican and the Pope. And Wasson made claims that every religion under the sun came from mushroom use except Christianity. He needed to keep Christianity from being connected to mushroom use, but Allegro and others have, have you know, shown other hypotheses is that it's possible that Jesus was real and he was consuming mushrooms. And that was part of the teachings. That was the mana, the bread. And Allegro was the foremost expert in ancient languages. I mean, this was the man they came to when they found the, uh, the seven sacred, uh, I'm not sure the, the proper name for that, but they came to him to decipher that. But then when he deciphered what the Bible might be saying, they didn't want to hear, hear any part of it. So what got me so inspired in this is literally the mushrooms like whispering, Hey, there's more to history than, than they're telling you. And it's like my goal to, to, you know, try and discover it. And again, you know, some of the most ancient cave paintings are of mushroom shamans and cows and mushrooms. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. It's really, it, it, the, the thing that always blows me away is that uh, when, when folks are so sure of the truth, when they weren't there, <laughs> you know, and then you go, how do you know for sure that that's the truth? And it's like, well, that's just because it is what it is. And that's what we've been taught. And it's like, still doesn't, it, you weren't there though. So like, I, it's okay to say, you don't know. It's okay to be, you know, the mystery again, that's the thing that I think is what makes life interesting is the mystery. Absolutely. The mystery. And how funny that these days our governments are admitting to UFOs and unidentified flying objects and all these sightings. And in my historical research, if you go back to Samaria, the first written language in the Sumerian tablets, their explanation of where knowledge came from was aliens, their planet, guys coming down and giving them the knowledge that was before Christianity. Right before Egypt or, you know, just around the same time. So that's, what's been so fascinating about my historical research is a lot of this is glaringly obvious. Okay. In Sumeria, that's where we're trying to say the beginning of civilization started because they figured out the first language. And then their first mythic story is that gods came down from a different planet and there's actual, you know, images of these gods and they look like aliens. I mean, we, we really need to give credence to these ideas that there, there are other life forms out there, you know? Yeah, of course. Of course. Well, I mean, we're, there's a grain of sand. There's a planet for every grain of sand, right? Isn't that the, the thought? And we're silly enough to think that we're the only planet that has life on it. <laughs> like how ridiculous is that? It's just so insane to me. I mean, maybe we're the newest or who knows, you know, but it's, uh, it, it is wild when someone will say like, you know, when I know that this is the truth and it's like, you don't, I'm sorry that you have to hold on to that to sleep at night, but you just, you don't. And there's something so scary to some people about admitting that. And I, and I'm, I think maybe that's something that all of this has taught me is that it's like, yeah, it's all right. Like, let go. Like, it's totally okay to go. I have no clue. I have no clue. I'm going to, I'm going to try my best to make this place as good as possible for whoever I come across and help out whoever I can. But I don't know what, what's, you know, coming around the corner and I don't know what was here before me. And, and I can't, I can't pretend to, you know, and it's okay to feel that. 
And that's an interesting thing. I think a lot of people are very scared of that. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people are very scared of giving up ideologies that they've been raised on and that, you know, their, their life and community revolves around. But I'll tell you this, one thing that psychedelics have shown me is that God is not a white guy with the beard in the clouds <laughs> who's keeping score of your good and bad deeds. And, and that's not Santa Claus either. So right. the fact that, you know, that is something that people go around believing and then they buy into guilt and sin and all of these ideas. I mean, that they started that thousands of years ago to disconnect us from nature, to make us think that we need to walk into a church and pay them our tithes and drink their holy water and their wine. And, you know, we can commune with nature anytime we want. We don't need to go to a church to, to meet God. I mean, ultimately we are God. That is the, the ultimate goal. That is what the snake was, was telling Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and, you know, that's why the, the snake was banished. And, you know, again, the more historical research I look at into the whole garden of Eden and, and that story as well. And the golden apple, you know, the Amanita muscaria is, is the golden apple. It was called the golden apple for hundreds and thousands of years. So if we're going to buy into maybe the story was true. Okay. And it's not a cultural myth that was created. Um, maybe they weren't eating an apple. Maybe what they ate was a mushroom and it allowed them to see like a God. And that was what the white man with the white hair in the clouds and his clipboard was so upset with is that it's a clipboard. Yeah. The, the, all of a sudden these humans realized they didn't need to fear me. They were me. And uh, so looking back at the history of it, yeah, I see that all of these religions are the same. They have recycled a lot of the same themes that date back even before Samaria. And really they're separating us. In reality, we're all humans. There's not different religions. There's not different countries. There's not different states. We're a human race. And right. if we don't get our shit together, we're going to extinct ourselves, and the earth and the animals are going to go on just fine. But, you know, we're one of the only animals that destroys our habitat. We literally, we'd be like fishes, you know, in our tank, just shitting and pissing all day and, and never cleaning it out. And right. that's what we do as humans. And that's why I think these plants and fungi teachers are putting the heat on so hard right now is we don't have much time to turn this around. We really have to do some work um, to make change. And, you know, like that famous saying, we are the people we've been waiting for. There's no better time than, than now for us to make real change. What's up, everybody? This is Mike. And today's show is sponsored by Sunset Lake CBD, a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with stress and sleep without breaking the bank. Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located just outside of one of our favorite places, Burlington, Vermont. For years, Sunset Lake was a dairy farm producing milk for Ben & Jerry's ice cream. We had them on the podcast. In 2019, they diversified and started growing hemp for CBD. And Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to the customer, cutting out all the cost associated with getting on the shelves at stores. They have CBD products for every occasion and offer tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even 
for that anxious dog of yours, they have pet products. Ooh, I need to get some for my dog that's barking all the time. But mm -hmm. I'll tell you this, I use these. The Sour Bears. So good. They are CBD gummies. I literally, no joke, I take these every night. They help me sleep. And it's almost bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I still, as I said it before, I'll say it again. You go to a long show, you come home, my 42-year-old ankles are not what they used to be. And I rub that salve all over them and uh, put them up, enjoy a, a nice cocktail, and uh, just let it ooze right into those sore bones. And you know what, folks, all you Comes a Time fans, if you check them out at sunsetlakecbd.com and use promo code TIME, T-I-M-E, you'll get 20% off all products. That's sunsetlakecbd.com. Use promo code TIME, 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Thank you. Get you some. You know, and that's a, it's an excellent point. And I think one of the things I've always had an issue with when it came to like religions where we are the one religion. And if, it, if you're not into this religion, when you die, you're punished, right? Like, how's that possible when someone, there were people who were born in a, you know, wood, woodland setting. There were, there were no towns, there were no uh, visitors, there were no outsiders, hundreds of years after hundreds of years. And they would look up at the sun or look up at the stars and creation myths would appear and their oral tradition would keep them alive. And that's how, that's what kept their origin stories and their creation myths together. And it gave them a sense of this is who we are in relation to the sun. This is how, who we are in relation to you know, the rain and the snow and the wind and nature and fire and all of that, all the elemental things that could affect you. Now, the thought that those folks died and then got to like Christian heaven and was like, oh, you didn't hear, like they didn't get to you yet. Like, no, you were wrong the whole time. Like everything that you thought, like the sun being, no, that wasn't me. I'm me and you're wrong. So hell's down that way. How, how's that, how's that even, if you do believe in a God, right? That God can go like, you're, you were an unbelievable person. You spent all of your life, like tending to sick animals. You helped people that were in need, but you got it wrong. So thanks. Thanks for your effort, but we'll see you. See you in a couple thousand years. It's, imp I mean, just what a silly concept. Yeah, it's a silly concept and kind of took over the world. And it, it, <laughs> it led to a lot of plunder and war and, and murder, you know, just this whole idea that we're separate. And again, that's what psychedelics do for a lot of people for the first time is they make them realize it's not about being a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu. It's about being a human, a human being. And that's what you saw in the Grateful Dead lot. That's what you see in the Grateful Dead family. You know, it doesn't matter if where you're coming from, you're just you're loved and you're accepted and you're part of that community. 
you know, we had a sacred reverence for everything originally thousands of years ago before, you know, religion and, and everything came along and separated us. When early man would uh, slaughter an animal, it was sacred. And they would pour the blood of the animal into the earth, believing that another one would grow out the next year, right? So our origin, we have origins long before religion, you know, right. long before saying you need to worship this person or that person. And it's so funny to me that Jesus has become this white-haired, you're this white, blonde, long-haired guy, when in reality he was a person of color who was murdered by the state. You know, and he hung out with prostitutes and and homeless people and all that. And it's like the story's long been changed. And again, just look at history. Why are they burning down the Library of Alexandria? Why are they getting rid of all the Eleusinian mystery temples and worship sites? I mean, that was a religion that went on in Greece and Rome for 2000 years. And it finally stopped because a ruler came along that said, we need to end this. This is getting in the way of us making more money. And, uh, you know, there was a reason that Jesus overturned the money tables in the temple, right? They yeah. were, they were taking money in the temple thousands of years ago and he called bullshit. So, yeah. you know, it, it's like the victors write the history. And so whatever society has been the most dominant and the most violent has won, and then they can burn the past and, and rewrite it to say whatever they want. So the mushrooms helped me dive into trying to get to the bottom of what is the real historical basis, right? There has to be something before religion came along. And uh, it's myth and these hunter-gatherer traditions. And even an ancient feminine mushroom mystery cult that was, you know, believed to be the ones that painted these cave paintings in northern Algiers. Wow. Did you say earlier that there was someone from Detroit who was doing 30 or 40 grams? Yes. This gentleman's name is Kalindi IE and, uh, amazing, amazing man, um, from Detroit. He was also a black belt in numerous martial arts, person of color, uh, mentor and guide within the community. Um, his wife is, uh, still going around the country and speaking on high dose, uh, experiences. He has numerous pupils that are carrying his lineage, amazing, beautiful men and women in their twenties to thirties that, that studied under him. But no, he was big into the 30 to 40 super large dose journeys. And what he said, and I'm not a student of his by any means, but what I've heard was said is these large doses are what start to bring in the codes and a lot of the stuff that people were seeing when they were building the temples and maybe the knowledge that directed them to build the temples and how to do it and, and all that stuff. So he was big into saying that it was the super large doses that allowed people to tap into these other codes and these other areas of knowledge um, that had been used in these advanced societies like Gobekli Tepe and, and Egypt for thousands of years. So um, I highly, highly suggest people checking out Kalindi IE um, and maybe we'll throw oh, something. In, yeah, we in could put. Notes. Yeah, we totally can. 40, like that. I can't even imagine that, that 30 to 40, like that's, that's mind blowing. 30 to 40 grams. 
I think honestly, this is what the priests, and this is my personal opinion. I can't prove this, but I think that this is what the priests and the, the medicine men and the high shamans were doing in the Aztec culture and in the Egyptian culture. And, you know, there, there is this ancient religion or cult of Mithra that was super ancient as well. And they used to go into caves and usually it was caves that had running water and they would literally lay in the water or build tubs that held water and they were early uh deprivation tanks and so they would they would combine psychedelics with deprivation tanks inside caves you know why are the oldest known cave paintings of psychedelics in caves because that was the underworld that was the subterranean that's where people went into the dark on the mushrooms to have that deep deep experience because it was total darkness you know when there's total darkness all you can do is go inside so there is some you know theory that that's what was going on inside these great pyramids you know is is these saltwater deprivation tanks and then 30 to 40 grams of mushrooms and and they're getting the codes and the visions on how to create these amazing structures how to have these amazing civilizations i mean look at the aztec civilization and they were figuring out how to have floating towns and islands that had a system to remove excrement and urine off of their floating town and island this was at a town when in europe you would this was at a time when in Europe you die from drinking the water. They were right. shitting in the water. Europeans hadn't figured out not to piss and shit in their own water. And here the Aztecs are, and they had certain people of their tribe that would collect the urine and the feces in, you know, uh, probably pottery type things in the canoe. And then the urine was used to tan hides and the feces was used to compost and, and use in their field somewhere. So these ancient civilizations in my opinion, were way more advanced than we were. And that was coming from the knowledge of these super, super high dose journeys um, that people like Kalindi Ayi and uh, Dave Hodges or Hedges out of uh, the Zydor Church in Oakland um, talk about. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it was Michael Pollan's book, Caffeine, uh, or I think it's called Caffeine. It's about caffeine. I don't know if you've checked it out yet. Short read. It's awesome. But Prior to coffee, the safest way to drink water was as alcohol. That's why everyone was drinking like, you know, beer and fermented forms of, of, you know, water because everything was too toxic to drink and, and it was either boil it or ferment it. And, and, and it's no wonder some of the, I mean, obviously that affected the art and the culture and look at caffeine and the industrial revolution kind of went like hand in hand, you know, but yeah, that's incredibly interesting to think about. I never really, um, it's kind of wild how, you know, you, you deprive yourself of the human senses in order to get a better understanding of the human condition, right? Like we take a break, a zero gravity chair in a meditation versus sitting on a, you know, like there, the, when you can relieve the humanity or the humanness of yourself, that's when you get a better understanding of what it means to actually be a human. Yeah. And I also think this is when they were connecting with the aliens and communicating with the other entities, much like people who see the DMT fairies or the elves or anything like that. You know, there are obelisks and pyramids and pieces of rock that we couldn't lift today with modern machinery. 
yet these ancient people <laughs> were somehow lifting them and they were somehow carving into granite with laser like perfection. And, and, you know, so it's like, how were they doing this? Well, they, in my opinion, and I'm not a doctor or an expert had a priestess or a shaman or somebody that was in charge of eating those large doses in the right perfect set and setting, whether it's a deep, dark cave or, you know, a deprivation tank that they created and finding out the knowledge, finding out the teachings. And, you know, you, you talk about caffeine and that's really what microdosing is to some extent is it's a healthier form of caffeine. It has stimulant like effects, right? It stimulates the hunter to be able to chase that for a long distance. And we can actually see that in the Terra Humera tribe of Northern Mexico. These people are unchanged since pre-Columbian times, right? So their traditions are the same. And still today they microdose peyote and they run ultra marathons. They run over a hundred miles at a time. And all this came from the them having to hunt game and then using small amounts of peyote to hunt game. Now, an interesting fact that I undercovered in, in all these books I'm reading is that it's believed that Cortez actually was microdosing his troops with peyote. And although he was murdering the Aztecs and they were not allowed to use fungi or mescaline, you know, cactus, anything like that, he was using it, you know, for his troops to hike in that heavy steel armor. So we've known for hundreds, if not thousands of years that, you know, microdosing can have a stimulant-like effect. Now, the beauty in microdosing as opposed to caffeine is there's not really a crash. You know, you're not having this big crash and this come down. It's kind of a consistent thing, um, you know, from when you wake up till you're, you're going to bed. So, um, you know, the interesting thing as well is I've, I've heard some research recently on, you know, pregnant women and, and psilocybin, can they microdose, can they macrodose? It's a whole different, interesting conversation. But if you look at the LD50 of psilocybin compared to something like aspirin, and the LD50 has to do with, you do a study with 50 animals and you give them asp enough aspirin until 50% of the animals die. And then, you know, that's the toxic rate for aspirin, right? Oh, okay. Well, they've done this with everything. And, you know, it's, it's, they've proven that, you know, mescaline and psilocybin is actually safer for people than aspirin, than, than caffeine, than, than certain things like that. So, you know, it's really important that we don't believe everything we hear. And we do our research. You know, I, I was speaking with a Mazatec elder a few months ago who told me that it is not uncommon in the traditional society for a baby with colic to get a very small amount of psilocybin in a bottle of mother's milk. You know, we have a lineage of using these fungi to not only treat kids, but young adults. And I personally think and hope that microdosing of psilocybin will replace uh, Adderall for kids and, and teenagers as we move forward. It's definitely a, a less toxic, less habit forming substance than Adderall, which is regularly prescribed to kids, uh, you know, beginning about five years old. Too easily. I mean, it's just too easily prescribed. It's just, oh, there's an issue here. There you go. Wow, that's interesting. How did that come about that you were talking with the Mazatec elder? Because I wanted to hear what the traditional lineage and history of microdose use was. So right now I'm working on a book and part of it was I wanted to trace back the earliest written 
proof I can find of microdosing. So I went to a Mazatec elder and the Mazatec tradition is an oral tradition. You know, most of it is not written down. So it's all shared from generation to generation. And I wanted to know what their take was on psilocybin for pregnant women. Um, because there is a huge contingent of um, mothers uh, reclaiming their sovereign right to treat themselves and finding that microdosing psilocybin uh, has helped them not only in um, while they're carrying the child, but postpartum um, when they're nursing the child, um, all of that stuff. So again, um, it's all something we need to re-educate ourselves on. Um, and there is a traditional use of these plant and fungi teachers with, with women throughout time. Now, it's important to note that the Mazatec culture doesn't believe that pregnant women should really use psilocybin because in their beliefs, it can lead to uterine contractions. And at the same time, I've spoken to, you know, a few dozen citizen scientist mothers who successfully used it with multiple children. And it's been hugely beneficial to them. Funny thing is, is we're talking about large doses and microdosing. Some of these women are actually using large doses as well. And this goes back to the LD50 research that I talked about, you know, People are pointing fingers at these mothers or these parents, but they don't want to look at that caffeine is more toxic than a lot of these substances or that sugary sodas for a pregnant mom is a lot worse than 50 milligrams of a mushroom. And, and that's the kind of re-education we need. So I just want to say I'm really proud of all of these mothers that are reclaiming their ancient wisdom and their ability to not be afraid of what someone might say. Now, I want to remind you, I'm not a medical doctor. You should not use anything when you're pregnant. I'm not saying that you should, but I'm saying that there are a lot of women that are taking their power back and finding out that these things help them. You know, and in, in, in hearing you talk about this, and I'm thinking about the beginning of life, you know, um, I'm very fascinated with what psychedelic experiences do for end of life as well. That part to me is so fascinating when you can see somebody go, because everyone's scared to die until you're not scared to die. And then you're like, why was I scared to die? Like, I was so scared to, of dying that I wasn't living. Right. And then you see some folks that have like a diagnosis that's like, you've got, you know, X amount of months left or whatever. Or there's not enough chemo in the world to shrink this tumor and they're able to like have that experience that they need where they can go like okay like I'm coming to the end of this chapter it's so amazing to me that whole that is a research within itself that I'm just like I'd love to see more of you're absolutely right and that's that's where we really could use this is, is an end of life care. And amazing enough, that is where some of the best studies with psilocybin came out of Johns Hopkins was when they were working with terminal cancer patients. And these patients were able to come back from their large dose journeys without the anxiety or the fear of death. Now, funny enough, we can trace this all the way back to Greece 2000 years ago and the Ellicinian mysteries. And the theory was, if you die before you die, you do not die when you die. The idea being for those that experienced a large dose 
experienced had an ego death, right? They connected with the universe. They saw that they're an infinite being. And when this meat suit dies, they go on to the next. So if you die before you die, you, you don't die when you die. And I think that that's something that psychedelics have really helped me with. Even microdosing is they've lessened my fear of, of death, you know, and if you can take away that fear of death, you can, you can live so much more. And I'm just really thankful to psychedelics for, for helping me um, see that there's not a white guy in the clouds with the beard and a clipboard. I love that he's got a clipboard. To me, that's just so hilarious that like, <clears throat> what was that clipboard? I'm just picturing it the way you're saying it. And it's so Monty Python. Like I just see, <laughs> remember when he, he appeared? Right. I'm pulling it out of my Monty Python images from when I was a child. Yeah. Well, but it's true though. Right. I mean, and that's the thing I always loved about Buddhism was right away when you learn about it, it's like, all right, rule number one, all of life is suffering. That's all it is. And, and that's the first, I mean, what an, what an amazing way to start thinking. It's like, Hey, don't expect any, no expectations, no disappointments. All of life is suffering. Get used to it. Let's figure out how to deal with it and move on. What that, that should be the beginning, you know, instead of it was all your fault and you need to you know, confess everyone's, you know, suffering because of you. He, he died for you. Well, you want to know the biggest bullshit, in my opinion, is that the, the beginning of the Bible and history supposedly starts out with, you know, a woman being blamed for something she didn't do. Like <laughs> the fact that we bastardize Eve right from the start and we create this whole story of, you know, the woman being bad or whatnot. I mean, the woman was the first one to bite the Amanita Muscaria. She was the one leading us to, uh, to healing and realizing that we were a God. And, you know, this is something that we see throughout society. Now you look at the stoned ape theory and you don't hear them talking much about the women, but in the stoned ape theory, if that's true, the women were the most important people because they were carrying the babies. They were right. passing on the DNA and the epigenetics. They were chewing on mushrooms while they were breastfeeding. They were chewing on mushrooms while they were carrying the baby in utero. And they were the most important part of the stoned ape. It wasn't the hunter going out and, and killing people. It was the mother. And I think that that is what we really need to remember is that the mother is the original shaman. The mother is the original healer. The feminine is the original, you know, look at mother, mother earth, you know, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And in my research, it's really interesting. You know, the male dominator society is what ended the matriarchy and it ended early on, you know, um, and part of what helped to end it was horseback and steel, good weapons, Genghis Khan and all those people coming east with horses and weapons into a place that was, you know, run by women and was a mushroom mystery cult and was about healing. Yeah, they were quickly slaughtered and murdered by people with swords and horses. And similar things happened to the Azteca in Mexico when the Spanish showed up. You know, the first person to run a report to the king reported seeing floating, floating mountains approaching with hairy, with like, they had never seen beards before, right? And so all these Spanish are rolling in on these floating mountains and they've got horses. 
they had only seen deers, right? They had never seen horses. And the other thing they had is they had mastiffs and they had these huge angry dogs and, and it was just so brutal, but it was the Spanish weaponry that wiped out and took over this amazing culture that had lived there for, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years. You know, I'm really glad that the mushrooms told you to study history because it's so interesting talking with you. You, you really have a, yeah, it's true. And it's, and it's, it's important. And these things do really kind of open you up to, it's the days you're not on them where you're like, oh, wow, look at this. I don't need a third cup of coffee. I don't need to turn on the television. I don't need to do. And a lot of this I've noticed in, and just being aware of your feelings and getting better and, and helping yourself is not always what you feel. It's what you don't. And I think that that's an extremely important thing that if anyone ever asks me about my thoughts on microdosing, I'm like, it's not always what you feel. It's what you don't feel. And, uh, that's extremely important because sometimes when you're taking medication, you're feeling so much other shit side effect wise, you know, like that you're kind of missing the boat, (laughs) you're missing the whole point. So it's nice when you're able to kind of go like, wow, I don't like feel anything. And that's everything at the moment, you know, and that's super important. Um, what's going on with flow state? Tell me everything that's happening. You have got so much going on. Every time we talk, there's always something cooking. So, uh, I know you've been busy. You've been traveling quite a bit, taking part in a lot of different summits and forums and yeah, the, the key for flow state moving forward is education, harm reduction and education until we're legally allowed to sell psilocybin. We're happy to sell our, our legal functional mushroom stack, but we're really getting into education. So in the last year, I produced an intro to microdosing class, 14 episodes with Double Blind Magazine uh, that was featured in Forbes magazine. It won top 10 new wellness product from Gear Report. So that's a really awesome project. Congratulations, I just man. Thank you. I launched the second microdosing masterclass with the San Francisco Psychedelic Society. That's an advanced microdosing uh, class that people can check out. We'll throw that into the, the show notes as well. And then lastly, I'm in the process right now of producing the microdosing summit, which will launch May 27th of this year, which is international microdosing day and Dr. Jim Fadiman's 83rd birthday. We have over 20 hours of amazing panels and talks on microdosing psychedelic, uh, a 53-minute talk uh, all about pregnancy, breastfeeding, and psychedelics, a lot of which I pulled out from today. Um, an amazing talk with Dr. Fadiman, a talk by Dr. Connor Murray, who did an amazing LSD study, uh, microdosing study at the University of Chicago that most people don't know about. This was a really cool study where he recreated a dorm-like setting. So he like created a dorm with like Tibetan prayer flags and all this stuff. And then he tested, you know, placebo, 13 micrograms, 26 micrograms. And, you know, he proved out where the placebo range is. And then he proved out where it's not placebo. And he did all these amazing things where he tracked that whether it was placebo or not, the peak of the microdose usually came around the fourth hour. And at the fourth hour, he'd hook their brain up to these EEG scanners and he would give them tests. And so that's a really amazing, uh, talk you can hear this is all at the uh, microdosing summit dot us um so really right now it's just about uh education and harm reduction i've been speaking at a lot of conferences but i'm really into putting out the education i think that you know 
a recent study of 34,000 people that had tried psychedelics and microdosing found that 20 to 40% quit after three days. And they quit because they were either taking the wrong dosage, meaning too much and it was uncomfortable, or they just were not educated and, and they gave up. So my most important goal with myself and with Flow State Micro is education and harm reduction. It's teaching people to start low and go slow and that you can always take more of a psychedelic, but you can never take less. The other really great one that I'd like to talk more about is uh, set setting and support adding that third S in of support, because it's not just about your set and setting when you're microdosing or macrodosing, but it's also about your support and your integration and how you're going to integrate this. You know, I've been hearing so much recently about Will Smith and how he had done 14 ayahuasca journeys in the last year. And I was a healed man. And then you see him go up there and he slapped Chris rock. Yeah. That's a good indication that he's not integrating experiences, right? Will give me a call. I'll help you integrate the experience. <laughs> you should yeah. not be taking 14 ayahuasca journeys in one year. That's like chasing the dragon. That's like looking for the next high. And that is a problem in the psychedelic space. People that think, you know, the more Cub Scout badges you get, the more times you take ayahuasca or Bufo or DMT, the better you are. Well, that's not true. You know, when no. you when you get the call on the phone, at some point you got to hang up, right? You, you can't yeah. be on the phone. You can't have your eye to the the microscope all day. These tools are not here so you take them for the rest of your life. These tools are here so that you can use them in a sacred way, maybe once or twice a year, or at that perfect concert, or in silent darkness, or with your therapist, or with your guide from an indigenous culture, whatever it may be. But we need to have access to this. And right now, the number one problem is it's illegal and that people are afraid that they're going to get in trouble. And uh, we need to change that as quickly as we can and decriminalize first. Amazing. You know, the thing that I've been hearing a lot and it comes up at the perfect times when talking about these types of uh, medicines is that you don't always get what you want, but you always get what you need. And not to, you know, loosely quote, uh, a Rolling Stone song, but it's very true. Like if you're willing to surrender and know that what you're getting into has your best interest in mind, that it might be bumpy, but you're going to be okay. And if you don't respect these medicines or these tools, they're going to teach you a really hard, difficult lesson. So my advice to anyone who's a beginner out there is they, they realize these are sacred. This isn't a, a party drug. You know, this is, these are sacred tools. And that's not to say that I can tell you how to use it. You can use it however you want. Make sure that you're in the right set and setting and don't forget about support integration, you know, whether it's a good friend who has experience or a coach like myself or, you know, a family member, whatever it takes, people need support. You know, you're going to be accessing parts of your brain that have been dormant for a long time. And for a lot of people, psychedelics can bring up some really tough stuff. So, you know, it's not rainbows and butterflies all the time, but that's the beautiful part of this work is that healing isn't linear. And it's not easy. And I think we as a society, we like our fast food coming quick. We like our Netflix on demand. We like our pill from our doctor. And if that doesn't work, we go and get another doctor. But what microdosing really does is it motivates people to change their life, add exercise, change their diet, 
drink more water, think less negative thoughts. I mean, that was a big one for me is just, I feel like it blocks the default mode network. It blocks that ruminating victim story that I became addicted to for 39 years. And it's not to say that it, that ever goes away. I mean, I think that's the challenge of life as suffering is, is we're always battling our mind, but the microdosing and the large doses have been so helpful to me. And I have taken them in the wrong set and setting in the past. And I wouldn't want anyone in the world to have that experience if they didn't have to, which is why I think the most important thing we can do, which is what you're doing with this podcast, is we can educate people. First, we can educate them that these were only made illegal in 1966 and that the people that made them illegal knew that there was nothing wrong with them and that they were really good and helping people, but that they could, you know, arrest black people and hippies. So that's why they do it. And then look back to your past and realize long before religions came along, we worshiped the earth and we ate mushrooms and we hunted animals and we were grateful and thankful and everything of this earth was sacred, whether it was a rock stone or a tree. And, you know, that's what mushrooms and psychedelics help us get back to is we're just simply part of nature. Yeah. We had medicine before CVS. Just remember that, <laughs> you know, there was medicine before, uh, you know, drive through pharmacies. We did, you know, and I, I heard something Dr. Joe Dispenza was saying today about distance healing. And he was doing some work where there's a group of distance healers that actually could heal people from, you know, a thousand miles away. And I had a thought about that. And I was like, yeah, those were the witches and all of the people that lived in the woods back in the day. And they were murdered and they were slaughtered by the church mm-hmm. and by government. And, um, because they were dangerous to the powers that be because they could help people and they can help people, you know, connect with, with God outside of a church. So distance healing, you know, the ability to heal yourself, the ability to make yourself sick. This is, this is part of being human. Um, What's inhumane is locking people up and keeping people from having access to these sacred tools. Absolutely. Adam, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for everything that you're doing. And uh, everyone who's listening, we will leave it in the show notes, but just so you can uh, hear it in case you're listening, Adam, tell everybody where they can find uh, Flow State and yourself. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, Oteal. You can find me at Flow State Micro on Instagram, flowstatemicro.com online and microdosingsummit.us. Thank you, everyone. Be safe out there. We are not giving medical advice. We're just here for entertainment, of course. But, uh, you know, enjoy. See you soon. Osiris. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.